0: Thanks for joining us on Beyond the Sermon, the podcast of First Methodist Church in Collingswood, New Jersey. Our goal is not only to share our sermons, but to go beyond the sermon in conversation about what we're learning and what God is doing in our lives and in our community. This conversation is inspired by our first 2023 sermon series, Speaking with a Wesleyan Voice, Rediscovering Our Methodist Tradition for Today. You can find more information about our church at fumccollingswood.org. Thanks for joining us for this conversation.
1: Okay, Scott, since we're talking about Wesleyan things, Mm -hmm. speaking with a Wesleyan voice, uh, one thing that's been a tradition in the Methodist Church, not only infant baptism, uh, but also confirmation when they're a little bit older, around the age of 12. And so what is the relationship between those two things?
0: Yeah, so confirmation and baptism are are integrally linked together in not just the Methodist mindset, but um, a lot of the denominations that still practice um, infant baptism. Because mm-hmm. in infant baptism, we are... Incorporating that child into the community of faith, we're marking them as members of the covenant family of God, and then at confirmation, they have the opportunity once they've reached that age where, you know, down through history, that age twelve or thirteen has kind of been an age that's been marked as an age at which we consider um, kids to have some some sense of accountability, and so hmm. in the Jewish faith, they've got you know, bar mitzvahs and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And um, a lot of cultures have something in that age 12, 13 kind of. Reason. Yeah. yeah, the age of reason, the age of accountability, uh, different things. And so uh, confirmation is that opportunity for a child who has been baptized, grown up in the faith, been taught and discipled to declare for themselves to take ownership for themselves of their own membership within the body of Christ and within a local congregation. And so confirmation is kind of, within those traditions, uh, what believers' baptism is in a more Baptist kind of theology.
1: Yeah. And so you were saying that the purpose of the baptism is to, uh, you know, have a covenant with a congregation, include them into the 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 body. Uh, what would be the difference between a baptism and a dedication service for an infant?
0: I think within our Methodist understanding of baptism, the difference would be that in baptism we're celebrating. The grace of God in the life of that child, the mm-hmm. the preventing grace, the grace that goes before we're able to uh, respond to God ourselves. Uh, we're focusing on the covenant that God makes with us, uh, and so the focus is really on what God is doing mm. in the life of that child. Whereas in dedication, there is a sense in which we're we're focusing on. What God has done in, in giving that child life and bringing yeah. into a family, um, but the the focus tends to be on our choice mm. to dedicate that baby to yeah. give that baby back to God in some sense, um, and so I think it's it's on some level it's semantics, but I think it's a difference of focus on mm. what we're emphasizing. Yeah,
1: and so you, you had mentioned the the grace that God provides earlier on,
0: also known as Provenient Grace. What's the history of Provenient Grace? So some people think that uh, Provenient Grace or Preventing Grace, depending on who you're reading, um, is kind of like one of Wesley's Innovations, Something new he brought in, this understanding that God is working uh, by grace even before we come to a point of being convicted and repenting and being justified. Um, but Wesley's not the only one who has this kind of idea. Uh, in more Reformed traditions, Calvinist traditions, they have a concept called common grace, which is given kind of to everybody uh, that enables us on some level even to be alive Even though we're so totally depraved mm. That apart from God we should Not even have life Yeah um, But the the origin of it can actually Be traced all the way back to Augustine Really? Uh, the church father Back in the 400's uh, He developed um, This concept of Provenient grace as The grace that precedes uh, What he called I'm Trying to think think he called it cooperating grace cooper- and operative grace. So operative grace and cooperative grace. So the, the operative grace being God's grace given to us, but then cooperative grace being the grace that's bestowed once we're working in partnership with God. Yeah. So hmm. not, a, not a new concept, not a 17th century concept, uh, but something that's been part of the church for a long time. Wow. And just found a different expression yeah. in Wesley's theology, kind of expounded on a little more fully.
1: Yeah. So so in scripture when they are baptizing new people and you see in acts as the disciples are going out it's it's for people that are coming to faith mm-hmm. uh and declaring their faith publicly and so why isn't uh, a rebaptizing using the water. Why aren't we rebaptizing those in confirmation class or new members that may have come from other denominations that baptized did infant baptisms as well? Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're professing their faith, their personal faith, why
0: don't we rebaptize them at that time? Well, I think there's two things at play there for us as Methodists. Uh, one is that if we if we talk about Baptism as a celebration of God's grace in you know and what He was doing in a life when they were baptized, even as an infant, then God's side of the covenant hasn't changed. His mm. grace hasn't stopped working, no matter what choices we've made between um, between our baptism and our coming to faith. God has still been faithful to the covenant, and mm. when we see. Um, baptism as inclusion in that covenant like circumcision was for the Jewish people we don't have to re-baptize someone because God's grace is still present there no matter even if we've gone off and lived a life of sin God's grace is still operative there Um, but then the second reason is going back to uh, what we talked about in the sermon yesterday where we talked about how Every instance we have in Acts is people coming to faith as first generation believers.
1: Mm. So
0: they weren't raised in the context of the Christian church. They may have been Jewish, they may have practiced some pagan religion, but when they came to faith in Jesus, they were doing so for the first time. You know, they couldn't have been baptized as a baby because the church didn't exist when they were a baby. And yeah. so. Um, in those missionary kind of conversations or context, yeah. um, it's still very appropriate to baptize yeah. people who are coming to faith for the first time. Or you know, even here in America, more and more people are growing up outside of the church. And so if they were to come to faith... Uh, and made a profession of faith they'd never been baptized it would be very appropriate to baptize them uh, when they came to faith and uh, that's something I'd love to see happening more and more in our church but we don't have to redo what was already done but if it's never been done Hmm. then it's very appropriate to do it as a believer as a profession of faith
1: yeah Uh, you shared on Sunday um, instances where when someone came to faith that the entire family, the, the, everyone in the household was baptized. Uh, and I, I think that's been a, a huge impetus as to why we have this tradition within the church. When you look back at, at Christian history, uh, there was a, a larger push for infant baptism during the Black Plague, because uh, there was the belief that you couldn't go to heaven if you were not physically baptized. Mm -hmm. And so with all of the children dying so young, most not making it past five, many families decided to have the infant baptized as soon as possible. As this tradition has grown and grown and grown, for me growing up, I didn't fully appreciate baptism, at least within the United Methodist Church that I grew up in, because it just seemed like anyone that showed up could just have their kid baptized, commit them to the church, and then never show up to the church again. Yeah. And at least that was the culture at my specific United Methodist Church. Um, and so it felt to me that it wasn't as sacred or important mm-hmm. if you could just like... Show up, do it, and go, and not keep the promises that you made. Like there was no true covenant made with the congregation, and I was always so excited, though, when a member uh, and their kid um, was baptized as an infant, and so it it led to me having a hesitancy. With, when you know, when I'm thinking of having a kid and now that I have a kid with ever doing a baptism because it felt like the holiness of baptism was stripped away with, we do it because we do it. And there's people that never attend church. And even mm-hmm. within the Catholic Church of it's the biggest thing, huge party, all yeah. white dresses or suits. And uh, it's a whole big thing. And then they don't show up again. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, it just lost its its. Holiness for me, but I've been I've been wrestling more recently now that we have a kid of just because other people might be a harsh word and it may not fully entail everything I'm thinking about the subject, but like abuse the sacrament. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that I shouldn't follow through with it as God had prepared for us. Yeah. And so, theologically, I agree, but emotionally, I've struggled with that idea for for decades since far before I was married or, or had sure. a kid, and and I mean, it's almost become a joke. Even within COVID, you know, the they had pictures of priests with like uh, super soakers, mm-hmm. skirting <laughs> mm-hmm. scr- baptism six feet away, and so it it it's kind of I don't know. It's just an area that I've I've. Thought about possibly too much, especially for not having a kid. Back when I was thinking about it a lot, thoughts. Yeah, so so a lot of stuff
0: in there um, that <laughs> I want to address. Uh, it's true that there was like this big push to start baptizing not to start baptizing but to make sure babies were baptized when ASAP. the big, the black plague was going through but like i mentioned yesterday it was something that even in the early church we yeah. have documentation going back you know the first written reference is in 180 AD yeah. um and then you know i read a couple quotes yesterday that talked about how that was what the church even in like the 200s believed was what had been passed down from the apostles yeah. and so um, they didn't start doing it during the Black Plague but there was a push because they conflated the idea of baptism and salvation together mm-hmm. and um, they they took the verses where it says that repent and believe and be baptized like yeah. that if you weren't baptized then you weren't getting into heaven and, and that was a Bit of a misunderstanding, yeah, uh, for sure. Um, so, we we don't believe that children who are baptized are automatically guaranteed salvation. Mm-hmm. We we you know I said yesterday that they still have to come to a point where they make a decision for themselves, where they make a profession of their own faith. Um, But that baptism is the initiating sacrament into that covenant reality and and the grace that God works in our lives. And so, following that Black Plague tradition, though, there's definitely been abuses of it where, especially in some some churches, uh, I won't even say some denominations, I think it's more about individual churches and how they handle it Mm -hmm. um people come in they want their baby baptized because that's what you're supposed to do and you never see them you're right like and i think that as a pastor is one of the hardest parts of my job Mm -hmm. when a family comes and says hey, we want you to baptize our baby. And we sit down, we have a whole conversation about what that means and the expectations I have in baptizing that child, that the family is going to be a part of the church, that they're going to allow the congregation to uphold their vow. Because we as Methodists, we make a vow to God and the child that we're going to help raise that child in the faith until they can come to a point of professing for themselves um, so that the parents are going to... Bring them and put them in positions where the church can keep that vow. Yeah. Um, and then when they don't, you know, it, it's it's hard, and I struggle with that. And sometimes it's like, well, should I have not done the baptism because the parents weren't faithful to their part of the vow? Do I trust that God, by His grace, is still going to work through that? Instance of baptism and that there are things he's going to do in that child's life. And nine times out of ten, that's where I come down on it. Um, That even though we're not always faithful, God is and... um, And we can trust in His grace. And and His grace is far bigger, I think, than we sometimes understand and works in mysterious ways sometimes. And and that might include a child being baptized, uh, even though his parents don't then continue to bring them to the church. Well, as a lay person,
1: like I said, I've been thinking about it for a very long time. Uh, I, I was always so excited to incorporate someone new into the body Mm -hmm. even as like older kid uh, youth and so the fact that i'm making like you said making that covenant as a lay person and then i can't fulfill it um was really really hard but like you said you know how god can work through those things i've had youth kids that were baptized in the church Family almost never went, and then I don't even know if they were creasters. For those that don't know, creasters are those that attend only on Christmas and Easter. But when it came time to youth group, and they were like, Oh, I have friends that are going to youth group, I'm kind of like interested in this whole like God thing, but also like hanging out with my friends. They were like, Well, this was the church we got baptized in, so we should try. Go to this one. And then that's how they ended up at the youth group. And they're very, very faithful in the youth group, um, strong faith. And even though we may not see the growth of the seeds that were planted at baptism for decades, or we may never know, or they may never walk through the walls again, that doesn't mean that God isn't working through it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, we pray for those mm-hmm. children. We do what we can. Um, If that happens and there's a family that has a baptized, uh, baby come to be baptized and and I don't see them again for a while, I try to remember at the one-year anniversary Mm. to send them a little note and say, I just want to remind you of the covenant you made and encourage you to to continue to raise your child in the church and in the faith. And um, if there's anything we can do to help you with that, you know, We'd love to hear about it. So yeah. just kind of a a gentle reminder. I mean, I just said it kind of bluntly, but... I <laughs> so um, that's kind of hard. I, I, I word it a little sentence. better than that uh, <laughs> when I'm not talking on the fly. Yeah. Um, but we need that reminder sometimes, mm-hmm. right? All of yeah. us. And so... And I think as a congregation, when you're talking about
1: praying, is that like we made that commitment... And, and when we were at our Ocean City retreat with the youth uh, back in September, one of the things we talked about was what we're able to do for people. And uh, we use the acronym CPR. You can care. That's the first step. If you don't care about them, then it's not going to go great no matter what you're doing. You have to care. Then you can pray no matter how your relationship with the person is with them. You're always able to pray for them. Uh, And then R is respond when God gives you an opportunity to help them, to lead them, to teach them, to be with them, whatever it may be. And so for a lot of those baptisms, maybe we're only able to care and pray, but Mm -hmm. that's what we're able to do with the covenant that we made for those children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hard switch up we got classes
0: coming up. Yeah. What are they going to look like? What are they going to look like? Uh, well, uh, hopefully, they're going to look like groups of 8 or 10 or 12 people, men and women together, who are meeting together on a weekly basis through the season of Lent um, with the goal of asking one question of each other. How is your life with God? Mm and given each person a chance to share uh, some way that they've either seen God work in their life that week, uh, something He's revealed to them in the Word, uh, a way that they've been praying and seen God answer, an opportunity to say, you know, I, I felt like God was leading me to do this, and I did it. And here was the result. Or even I felt like God was leading me to do something and I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And I want to do better next time. I want to listen to that leading next time. And so it's, it's an opportunity to report on what God's doing so that we begin to open our eyes more throughout the week to what God's doing in our lives. You know, hopefully week to week, what you're reporting on what you're answering to that question changes. But if every week it's just, I read this and I learned that, you know, it begs the question of what else is God doing in your life? Mm -hmm. Um, What other ways are you engaging with God and hearing his voice and being sensitive to his spirit? So that's what I'm hoping, you know, for those six or seven weeks. And uh, we're going to offer like a workshop or a training session to people who are interested in helping to facilitate those groups. Um, So that way they're not just being sent in there blind. Um, But just to give them a little encouragement and and some tools to use and questions to ask that kind of stuff. Um, And hopefully, you know, this becomes part of the small group culture in our church. And I hope that people don't hear in my push for us to try these kinds of class meetings, small groups, you know, any kind of disdain for Bible studies or classes where we sit and learn together because I think those are important as well, but I don't think they can be the only kind of groups that we're part of. You know, we need to learn in community because there are people who see from different perspectives and offer uh, different ways for us to, to learn about God through Scripture. But that's not the only way God's working in our lives. And so we need to be looking for how God is working to shape us in
1: holiness. I'm just curious, just randomly came to my mind. Do we have any examples in the Gospels or the act, uh, Acts as the disciples are going out of the disciples joining together or being called to join together to study I mean, they weren't studying the New Testament, obviously, but, like, even to study
0: the Torah. Yeah, I think in Acts 2, uh, after uh, the Spirit comes at Pentecost, we get that um, famous couple verses that, you know, people They're always one talk mind about. and They broke bread together. Yeah, they and... devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone's filled with awe and At the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles, they held everything together. They sold property and gave to anyone who was in need. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Um, And so, right off the bat, it talks about being devoted to the apostles' teaching. And, you know, what were the apostles teaching, but how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus and passing on the things that Jesus had taught them about how to interpret the Old Testament in light of what he had done and all that
1: kind of sound stuff. sound like a group study. Like, you can be devoted to the apostles' teaching Sure. without... Yeah, and you might even think of that, well, they, they listened to the apostles' preach. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And so, that's I'm, I'm just curious, because it's... Interesting how we've gotten to a point where that is such a staple mm. within the church. Mm-hmm. And yet, of all the things that were just listed in the early church, that was a little bit of it. But it also doesn't like have a specific format yeah, in it because, uh, I mean, well, luckily for them, they had the apostles there. <laughs> right. So, so obviously, you know, we need to go to scripture for the apostles' teachings, but that's, I think... Part of the beauty of what we're going to be doing with the classes is that it's we're all going to the apostles teachings on our own outside of just the once
0: a week Mm -hmm. format. And then we can come back together. And I think there are probably two points where that shift kind of. Solidified itself mm. in church history. One was in the Protestant Reformation, and subsequently with uh, Gutenberg's printing press, when the Bible came. You know, they believed boy. that they could believe that it could be translated into the language of the people, mm-hmm. and it could then be produced in such a way that people could actually. Acquire it. Yeah. You know, prior to that, it was scrolls and multiple things, and most people didn't have one in their home. And so when people could read it in their own language and hold on to it, that was a new thing for them. And so I'm sure there was a push to start studying it together. Yeah. And I I can't blame them with all the
1: abuse within the church. Sure, of, sure. If you can only hear it from one person and not read it for yourself, all the all the cherry picking and all mm. the power struggle within the leadership of the church. And so that's that's the beauty of having
0: the word available to us as lay people. So that's interesting. And what's the second? The second one, I, Go I think, goes back to the Sunday school movement in mm-hmm. the 1780s started in Britain. And there was a big push to start all these Sunday schools for yeah. kids to be able to learn about the Bible and about God and stuff. Um and that became, over time, the primary discipleship mechanism that mm-hmm. churches used to disciple people. But it was very much a classroom kind of setup where there was a teacher and there were students and you were learning from that teacher. Uh, but I think that 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 Sunday school movement with its focus on passing on information and that kind of stuff – came to then kind of become the dominant way we thought about forming disciples was through Mm -hmm. the transmission of information. Whereas I think these class meetings call us back to a focus on formation and transformation, Mm -hmm. uh, what God is actually doing in my life and not just what information do you have that you can pass on to me.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So it's more about getting to know God and the way he works than to know about God even as he's revealed himself in scripture, even though I love scripture. And and I think it needs to be part of our discipleship. Yes, please reference multiple podcasts about how much we love scripture.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just in case it was in question. Now there's been talks about societies, classes, and
0: bands.
1: What's the difference...
0: Yeah, so I, I mentioned those in the the Means of Grace sermon, if, mm-hmm. if you didn't get a chance to listen to that one or the conversation about it. but um, So Wesley had eventually developed these three different kinds of groups. The societies were the largest group. That's, that would be similar to what we think of as our worship services on mm-hmm. Sunday morning. Um, it was a little different because back then everyone who was a Methodist was still an Anglican and so they were going to the Anglican church on Sunday morning so this would be like Sunday night or Thursday night they would meet together in these societies but then the class meetings would meet and at one point early on to, to gain admittance into the society meeting you had to show a ticket that was proof that you were part of a class are we making FUMC tickets? No. Oh. But because Wesley felt so strongly about being in these kinds of intentional discipleship relationships, mm-hmm. and these class meetings really were the core unit of what it meant to be a Methodist, you had to go on a regular basis. And, and if you weren't, then you weren't permitted to be part of the larger group. Mm-hmm. So that's the society and the class. And then the band meeting was an even smaller group of people, three or four people men with men women with women and the goal of the band meeting was for those who really wanted to press on toward holiness to have a place where they could come and confess their struggles and their sins their temptations Mm -hmm. their successes and failures with those um and receive from their fellow band members um the forgiveness of christ you know to be offered you know We hear that and in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven because scripture says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins. Mm -hmm. And so um, that became a part of the band meeting. So it's not that everyone was part of a band, Mm -hmm. but everyone was part of a class. And if you're a part of a class, then you could be part of the society. And if you're a part of a class, you might choose to also be part of a band.
1: Well, if you are not already in a small group or Sunday school class that's discussing um, the formation of classes and you would like to participate in one, please reach out to the church
0: office and we would love to get you connected with that. Any other exciting things coming up? So our sermon series during Lent is going to focus on the seven deadly sins and what they look like in our lives today, the grace that God offers and the virtues that he wants to form in us in their place. And so on February 19th, we're going to be starting that series.